welcome to the After the Bell podcast, brought to you by Connects Education Academy. Our podcast is here to help teachers, leaders and tutors. We will be discussing the latest issues in education and sharing top tips for use in the classroom, both face-to-face or virtually. Welcome back to our series of podcasts on trauma-informed practice brought to you by Connects Education Academy. As a provider of the fully funded senior mental health lead training, we are acutely aware of the challenges young people are facing with their mental health and the challenges schools are facing supporting students with this. Increasingly, schools are becoming more aware of the impact of traumatic events during childhood and using this awareness to inform their approach. Our guests today are Andy Bridge, a Deputy Head Teacher, and Debbie Davis, Head Teacher in Senko. Thanks for tuning in with us for our second podcast. And you'll remember that we began last week by looking into what trauma is. We covered three types of trauma known as simple, complex, and developmental trauma. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about the key principles that underpin trauma-informed practice. Indeed, most of our discussion will stem from the government guidance working definition of trauma-informed practice, November 2002. We believe that looking at this will help us to identify the key principles to apply in our work in schools. So, Andy, lots to discuss today. Where shall we begin? Morning, Georgie. Uh, Yeah, lots to discuss. I think probably it would be worth us just stating before we get started that that definition you've given there is... Um, it's government government definition, but it's from the health and social care sector. Um, so there's still lots of professionals um, and researchers that are that are looking at how trauma informed practice should work and inform our approach in education. So we've not got our own definition yet for the education sector. So our best case is to use this um, health and social care one. So if we use that for now as our um, basis to underpin our discussion. And there's some really key principles that um, underpin it, and I, I do think they are relevant to schools. So we can look at safety, trustworthiness, choice, collaboration, empowerment, and cultural association. Uh, sorry, cultural consideration. Debbie, I don't know. Do you want to get started talking about safety and and the idea of Maslow's hierarchy of need? Yeah, no problem. Um, it's, it's great to to be back, both of you. So yeah, th- that's right. And more more specifically. Um, referred to as safety needs, meaning personal security, employment, and and I'm I'm using the word employment because obviously we have different types of schools. We have primary settings, we have secondary settings, and we work towards uh, helping young people to find employment. We're talking about resources, health, and 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 property as well. Having you referred to that in in podcast one, Andy, about having a property to to live in, and. I'm thinking back to last week, Let, let's recap how trauma exposure can impact on individuals' neurological, biological, physiological and uh, social development. Uh, and the guidance tells us that, and it's it does seem self-explanatory, but it, when you read it, it really is helpful. So safety, the physical, psychological and emotional safety of service users, which which obviously if we're talking about in schools, we're talking about children, if we apply the principles, um, is prioritised by people knowing they are safe or asking what they need to need to feel safe or asking about that. 
there being reasonable freedom from threat or harm and attempting to prevent re-traumatisation, we'll come to what that means later on, and putting policies, practices and safeguarding arrangements in place. It's self-explanatory, but when you read it, you know how that lends itself to helping children with trauma and being trauma informed, I think. I totally agree with you, Debbie. And and what does this look like in the classroom and school then, Andy, from your perspective? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And um, I guess we need to consider policies, practices, safeguarding arrangements as our starting point. And it goes without saying that every school will have a safeguarding policy. They have to, you know, legally they have to have that policy. And linked to the safeguarding policy, there's a whole host of other policies, possibly child protection, behaviour, send policy, attendance policy, anti-bullying policy. And these all tie in and should inform our practices. So the policy is just statutory. We know that schools are going to have that. But for me, more importantly, is the culture of safeguarding. Um, and that's not something that happens overnight or without kind of deliberate work to embed that culture. So if we get that safeguarding culture right in schools, that's absolutely key um, at bringing about that openness and the sharing and, and having every child within the school know that they can talk to a trusted adult, um, that they know who the safeguarding lead and the deputy safeguarding leads are, that they've got access to information, whether that's posters, booklets, information shared with form tutors, um, all of these things where children feel safe, they can share their thoughts, they know that they're going to be listened to and trusted and that there's somebody they can turn to, that all creates a safeguarding culture and having that in place helps prevent children becoming re-traumatised um, and it's part of a much bigger picture, it's having access to mentoring, counselling, excellent pastoral care from form tutors or heads of year, send provision, outreach with family um, members, it's absolutely huge and all these things tie in and, and triangulate together if we get that provision right. The triangulation has been so powerful, I think, um, that we've seen from sort of experiences. So thinking about that is really, really key. Um, so thank you so much for sharing, Andy. And, and moving on to the next principle, which I believe is trustworthiness. Andy, let's let's talk about that in further detail. Yeah, so I guess this is just transparency um, within an organisation and, and that transparency builds trust amongst the staff, the students, the parents, the carers. Um, so it's about trust that the organisation school knows what it's doing and why, that the staff do what they say that they're going to do, that expectations that are made are clear and actually that we don't overpromise. Uh, we don't tell children that we will do something that we don't, don't then deliver for them. So for us, it, you know, in terms of how this is relevant to schools in the classroom, we talk about helping children know that we're on their side, we're their champions, we'll support them. Keeping them in the loop and um, keeping them informed, I think it's quite easy to put a lot of support in place for children and assume that the parents or the carers need to be informed, but actually so does the child. Um, and that might, for example, um, form part of an EHG support for a child with special educational needs. And then when, when we get that, we've got the, the different agencies working together, as we talked about in the last series, to make sure that that level of support that they get is absolutely comprehensive. 
Thank you, Andy. I think I think your explanation is really comprehensive as well. So it seems really sensible and, and very logical, really. But but Debbie, what about the next principle, which is known as choice? Surely we all have a choice anyway. I mean, that's a good point, Georgie. And, and I, I'm going to come back to keeping using the word service user, because remember, this document is, is about um, the, the care sector. But we're talking about how it might apply in schools. But, you know, service users, so children are supported in shared decision making. And you're right, we all should have a choice choice and goal setting to determine a plan for action they need to heal and move forward so this could happen by ensuring that children and staff have a voice in decision making processes with, um, within the organization and its services listening to the needs and wishes of of the children and explaining choices clearly and transparently also, we need to think about acknowledging that people who have experienced or are experiencing trauma may feel a lack of safety or control um, over the course of their life, which can really cause difficulties in developing trust in relationships. So it's about understanding them. We've talked about understanding. So uh, this is another obvious one again. So in practice, what does it actually look like in schools and classrooms? So for me, in short, it, it's about listening and hearing the child's voice and that of the caregiver. So, for instance, a classroom teacher might ask a child where where they would like to sit, if they would like to answer questions, if they feel confident. But what subjects do they love? How can we access the subject matter in our regular lessons? So, for instance, you might have a child who absolutely loves One Direction and you might be able to get a comprehension activity where you're looking at One Direction to, to bring them in and feel valued and feel included. Um, and what, what will help them to learn best? Uh, and from a, a leadership point of view, understanding the child's wishes and feelings. Wishes and feelings are, are words that are, are linked with the care sector and translating the wishes and feelings into achievable goals and targets that all stakeholders are aware of. And I'm coming back to the graduate graduate uh, graduated approach for SEND and it's key here in supporting uh, SEMH, um, social and emotional and mental health of children. And the process has to be absolutely clear and transparent. We'll, we'll share some top tips later in the series in terms of supporting a traumatised child in the classroom. But it's all about safety, trust, choice and collaboration. All of those sound like, you know, obvious points, but also um, yeah, definitely, definitely things that everybody's entitled to. So, Andy, we've we've now got the next principle. Will we share with us the principle of collaboration? Yeah, of course. And I think we've we've touched upon this, but this is really the idea that, um, well, certainly when we're applying it to schools, that we don't have all the answers ourselves. And no matter how much we try, a child who's experienced trauma is going to need support from not just from their form teacher or not just from the head of year, but we need to collaborate and see that between a number of organisations, we can provide all the support that's needed, but no one organisation can provide that on its own. So it might be we need to engage a speech and language therapist. It could be 
legotherapy, it could be counselling, it could be all kinds of different support that different people are experts in and we need to be really outward facing and open to that collaboration because only then will the child get the very best support that they can. Absolutely and that also seems so so much sense uh, to me. So Debbie can you briefly take us through the final two principles which are empowerment and cultural consideration? Yep of course. So again these principles are that they are common sense really and for a child who has lost power due to abuse and we've talked about the different types of abuse sexual physical emotional and neglect uh, being degraded living in poverty um, and having attachment issues we will talk about attachment issues further on in the podcast series um, and you know the most rewarding and impactful way to work with them is to empower them and traumatized children may tend to have a really low self-worth and they don't feel empowered because they've lost a lot of their power because of the situations that that they've been in so when we think about how we're going to support them we look towards empowering them so they they feel that they're part of the journey and they feel that they've got some control over their lives which they may have lost a lot of control along the journey and finally when when you you've, you've mentioned the last one as well about cultural consideration it, if we move past cultural stereotypes and biases based on for example gender sexual orientation age religion disability geography race or ethnicity and, and we do this by offering access to gender responsive services and um, offering sort of like a healing value of traditional cultural connections. So if a child's lost connection with their culture, let's help them to heal by keeping that culture alive for them so they have a sense of identity and again empowerment and incorporating policies and protocols and processes that are responsive to the to the needs of the individuals served. I, I hope that helps. Um, I can't think of any more to add there, Andy. Can you? I I think I for me I think simply validating the feelings and concerns of children and and listening to to their wants and needs is is it's obvious and and um you know it, it sounds like common sense but actually these guidelines really really reinforce what we all know already don't we so um andy what would you have some examples you could share with us yeah you know i, I think this feeds in really nicely to the work that um schools have a responsibility to do to promote fundamental british values so respect tolerance democracy liberty the rule of law all, all these things that debbie's outlined actually tie into that really closely so if we're seeing good practice in schools that'll be a really thorough PSHCE program um, it might be a form time program assembly program that helps deliver um, and adds that cultural capital of the child and don't forget some children that we're talking about here might have been exposed to extremism radicalization racism to them that might be the norm that they've been brought up with um, and obviously as a school we've got a responsibility to to educate that child and offer insight and learning and knowledge that then helps them make the right choices so i think 
valuing traditional cultural heritage is crucial, but also, you know, educating about um, cultures and faiths and religions that aren't necessarily part of the child's upbringing so far and making sure that, that they can see that as a really positive um, experience to engage in as much as that's possible. I think we've unpacked quite a lot here today. So I, I, I know that we're going to dive into some of these conversations again in our next podcast. But thank you both so much again for these discussions. There's, there's so much here that we really, really need to be focusing in on. So I hope anyone that's listening will find these useful and actually we can start to sort of talk about strategies and approaches that we can do to support. The principles are based on common sense, really. And I think the examples you've given are, are most helpful. Um, in next week's podcast, we're actually going to look at adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, as it's called. Um, and ACEs and trauma are inseparable. Um, they go alongside closely with each other. Um, we do actually have some training here at Connects Academy um, around awareness of um, adverse childhood experiences. Um, so uh, if you have an opportunity, have a look and see if you can find that course for us. We're also very proud to be a DFE approved provider of the Senior Mental Health Lead Training. So you can find out more about that, that and other training by visiting connects-academy.com. You can pick up our After the Bell podcast, which are released on a weekly basis and designed to provide quick tips and discussions with our experts around all things educational. And these can be accessed quickly on your daily commute if you're walking the dog or on your treadmill or just as a focus for your day. Thank you so much for listening to After the Bell brought to you by Connects Academy and we look forward to catching up with you very soon. Thank you. Thank you.